Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. It's a big week when RHAP is on the road in Chicago. Check out my live show from Chicago. That's going to be up on Thursday, Wednesday night. Shannon Gus is going to be live with you with Kelly Wentworth after Survivor. And we preview the Dondi finale with Dealer No Deal Island host Joe Manganello. all right here on RHAP. We know reality TV. everybody. I'm Sarah Carradine, podcasting from unceded Gadigal land. And this is Inside Job, bonus content for subscribers to the Crime Scene feed. You can subscribe at robhasawebsite.com slash crime feed to get your true crime on Tuesdays, as well as bonus content like this. Inside Job brings you conversations with people who know crime, the law and justice from the inside. If you have a story to tell, message us on Twitter at Crime Scene RHAP, that's Scene, S-E-E-N, or email us at Crime Scene RHAP at gmail.com. This week on Inside Job, the ex-cop. Hi, Susan. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Sarah. Now, you joined the New Zealand police in 1995, but there was a case in 1999 that brought an end to your career as a police officer. Do you want to just tell us about that? Yeah, sure. I joined the police in 95 as a general duties constable, and then in about 1998, I became a uniform attachment to the CIB at the local Kilburnie police station. And during that time there, I came across a group of younger guys that were doing some things around the Kilburnie area that I had some bail interactions with and they'd done some petty crime. And that was fine and that was just uh, ticking along. Then in about the February of that year, quite a large arrest was made by a young guy who was originally from the Kilburnie area, had gone overseas to Amsterdam and had come back and on his way back in, he'd been arrested for possession of illicit drugs, basically ecstasy, and he was arrested. And his name was William John Hanstra. And so I kind of knew about him because I had to do bail checks on him. And then in April 1999, unbeknownst to the Kilburnie police station, there was a missing persons report made by a girl called Michelle King. And just to say, nothing that I'm saying today is not available in the public domain. So I will speak to anything that you could Google. And she reported her friend, Terry Robert King, missing. It was about April 1999. To complicate things further, Terry Robert King was originally 
called Trevor Raymond Heath. He'd changed his name. So this added more complexity to this case. And so he was reported missing. And so there were some inquiries made, but, you know, it didn't go too far. And then the jungle drums within the Wellington nightclub drug scene started to beat. And there was information coming back that potentially he had been murdered, but there'd been no body. So, you know, it was like things were happening, informants were telling different people, but there was no real information. And without a body, there's not much you can do. Then I think it was uh, middle of June 1999, a body was found in the Rumataka Ranges, which is about an hour and a half out of Wellington North. And it was in you know, where people go tramping, but it was off the tramping track. And a a tramper had found the body because he'd gone over from a hut and gone down to a place that, because he was chasing his dog, I think I remember now. And that's where they found this body that had been shot through the back of the head. And so um, an investigation was launched and due process then discovered it was Terry Robert King. And so a rather large um, homicide inquiry was launched out of the Lower Hutt Police Station, which was where I think I think the, the missing persons report had been filed. And it gathered quite a few people together. And, you know, when something like that happens in Wellington, a number of people have brought from different areas. And I was actually asked to go and participate in the inquiry because I had some dealings, I knew William John Hanstra from Kilburnie and also his associates because I knew about them. So I became involved in the inquiry right from the word go. So a homicide inquiry was launched with at least 50 odd people into this. It became very apparent early on that this was quite complex because of the the, the drug kind of scene within Wellington and also between about March and June there'd also been another large arrest of another syndicate that had been arrested for importing a number of drugs into Wellington, a group of South Africans as well as some local people from the wire wrapper. So information was pretty hot and there was lots of stuff flying around. So there were lots of different parts of the Wellington police that were involved in this investigation. And it was big. Um, and, in, and with an investigation like this, it's, you know, just a matter of doing lots of legwork, groundwork, trying to establish, you know, the connections, all Terry Robert King's connections, you know, what he was up to, who he was. So a lot of um, this kind of thing is about who the victim was and trying to work back. It turned out that Terry Robert King was a bit of a likable rogue. He um, he was somebody who, he was a plumber by trade, but not very good at it. Um, he had been known to hook up hot water into toilet systems and things like that. But he really, he was a bit lazy, so he wanted to make his money by drugs. So he was trying to break into the drug circuit, but he really didn't know what he was doing and he was a bit of a fly in the ointment compared to Find a few of the other players in the Wellington scene. So, after quite a bit of you know researching and talking to people, we established that he had a connection to William John Hanstra, and that they were friends. 
and that they were talking a big talk that they were going to be the next big drug dealers in the Wellington circuit, that William John Hanstra, whilst he got arrested and caught with some drugs, he had a stash. And that stash was up in the Rumataka Ranges. Um, And he had managed to bury that prior to the cops arresting him. And Terry was like, mate, we'll go get it. We'll go get it. So they embarked on a plan to go and get these drugs. And they were going to dig them up and bring them back to Wellington. And they were going to make their money. William John Hanstra couldn't travel out of Wellington too often because he was on bail for his other charges. Uh, So Terry tried to go and find the drugs himself and he couldn't find them. So he came back and said, you need to come with me. So they went tramping to find these drugs. And the prosecution, the police case, alleged that William went with Terry and shot him up there and left him for dead and came back and people were asking him where he was and he said, oh, he's taken off. I think he got a bit hot for him. And so... This all was stuff that we came out during our inquiries. So the inquiry lasted for quite some time. There was lots of different parts to it because we're dealing with lots of cohort of people, family, other criminals, et cetera, et cetera. Lots of legwork being done and a big inquiry. So after doing quite a lot of work and a special investigation, it was called Operation Royal. William John Hanster was arrested in October 1999 for the murder of Terry Robert King. So by the time we got to the arrest stage, the investigation and the number of people involved reduces. And then once you've made the arrest, then it's a matter of, right, we've got to start getting everything ready for court. And through, I can't even remember how, but I ended up staying on this case right to the end. Um, And as people dropped off and went back to their old jobs and roles, I was still involved. And so from October 99 through to when we went to court in December 2000, there was a core group of five or six for quite some time tying up loose ends. And then from about March 2000, there was just three of us working on this case. And we were as you can imagine, working on something 24-7 all the time. The three of us were right into it. The files were huge. We had Eastlight files and because in the police everything was on paper and evidence recordings and all the evidence, it was huge. And so by the time we got to court in December 2000, there wasn't anything that the three of us did not know. So preparing for court was quite a challenge because it was it was very a very complex case. When you're dealing with juries, you need to really take them on a journey. And this was very complex because it was different players, all that kind of stuff. So we sat with um, the Crown Prosecutor and we felt that the best we were going to ask the judge if we would be in a position that we could prepare a booklet for the jury so that they could we could take them on a journey and they wouldn't have to write notes. But the challenge with the justice system is that a judge needs to be fair to both parties. And whilst we had the means to be able to put a booklet together, he didn't think it was fair 
because the defence didn't have that same opportunity. So we weren't allowed to put anything together to make it easy for our jury to take them on this journey. So that was interesting. And so the defence didn't want that to happen. So anyway, so we thought, well, that's fine. So it was a matter of wrangling, I think, about 75 witnesses. And you can imagine that these witnesses also weren't of a cohort that would like to be giving evidence, would like to be getting picked up by the police to go to court, like to be going to court. So there was a lot of wrangling to get our witnesses there. So that also took a lot of pre-work, a lot of making sure it was okay, getting other police people that had contacts with them to get them, to make sure they're going to be there, pick them up, make sure they said the right evidence. So we had our trial date set, we had our witnesses ready, and it was set for a six-week jury trial, which is a long time. So then comes jury selection. So in New Zealand, jury selection does not require, it's not like Australia, where you have to turn up and you get fined. If It's potluck who turns up and see what happens. So because it was a six-week six week trial, we basically got students, unemployed. That was our jury. I think we had two people that had jobs. And so we knew we were up against it because of the jury. And then once the jury was selected, they came back in, elect a foreman. The foreman elected was an 18-year-old student who'd just left school. And we just knew we were up against it. Just knew that was going to be a challenge. Anyway, we went through the trial. Pretty complex, but we were pretty confident we had it all laid out. But with a jury trial, a defence, they're there to deflect. They're there to cast out. They're there to sow the seeds of it couldn't be this young boy. Look at him. I forgot to mention a very important factor. He was a model. So he was a good-looking boy. He was dressed very nicely in court. His family were always there. How could this possibly be? The defence were always throwing about what a good boy he was, nice-looking chap. He's a model, got a job. This can't possibly be. So there was just constant deflection. And every time we put something up, the defence would cast doubt on it and say we couldn't do something and something was wrong. We'd be scrambling around behind the scenes trying to get an answer for it. So if they brought something up, I gave a lot of evidence in the trial. So I was at the back. I wasn't allowed to listen to a lot because I gave evidence about 12 times because I'd got uh, information and done some analysis and stuff like that. In fact, the jury used to laugh at me every time I rock up and, oh, here she is again. So we'd be scrambling out the back trying to find answers to everything. But, yeah, so it was long, it was processed. So then when it came to summing up, we put a a proposal to the judge that we would do a PowerPoint presentation so that, again, that we could lead the jury on a journey that they would understand the complexities of it, that they could see the progression of what we were trying to do, but that was not allowed because the defence said they didn't know how to use PowerPoint, so therefore that was a disadvantage to them. So we tried our best. It took a whole day for our prosecutor to summarise the case. The defence then 
only provided two to three witnesses as defence. All their defence was everybody else, the South African drug dealers, the Russian mafia, all sorts of things. This is little old Wellington, New Zealand. Terry Robert King would not know South African mercenaries or the Russian mafia, but he did know William John Hanstra. Anyway, after three days of deliberation, the jury came back and uh, William John Hanstra was not guilty. So I was reflecting on how I felt when I heard the not guilty verdict, and I just don't remember it. I just don't remember anything until about four hours later, and I was sitting in the Lower Hutt Police Station and I had a beer in my hand, but don't remember anything till then. And so the team were like, we just looked at each other, didn't, couldn't speak. People were coming, they'd heard the result. They would come and see us. They would just look because they just knew the work that had gone into it. They knew how complex it was. It had received quite a bit of press. It was a big case for Wellington, and it was, yeah, I can, I just, I remember so many people looking at me, and I just looked back at them, and I was the only girl, female police officer, so I don't know that they knew how to handle me. I was new. I was relative, I was only a detective constable at that stage, so I wasn't qualified, you know, it was a a lot of people would said to me it was such a big case for me to do so early on in my career. It was, yeah, I don't know. So it was, I don't, I just, I just don't know. I just don't remember a lot of it. So then the next day, the bosses, the big boss, said we could all take some time off, and that was okay. But he would like us to go to counselling because he felt that it was important we go to counselling. Now. 20 plus odd years ago in the police to be suggested to go to counselling, that wasn't a thing. And we went, but we went as a group, and I don't think that was the idea that the boss wanted us to do either, but that was the only way I think I was going to get a couple of the other guys there, and we went as a group. And, of course, nothing. They were all stoic sitting there, these detective sergeants and detective seniors and detective inspectors, and here's little old me sitting there. And they're not saying anything, so, yeah, I'm not going to say anything. So we had some time off. I remember after having a couple of weeks off and I caught up with a detective uh, sergeant, and he said, oh, how are you going? And I went, oh, okay, I'm sleeping a lot. You know, I'm always sleeping and I'm always tired. And he goes, well, you know what that is, don't you? Said, no. He said, you've got depression. And I had no clue that that was something that I had, that just because I was sleeping a lot. I thought I've been busy on this for 18 months. I'm tired. Didn't think for a minute that I may have had depression. So I did go back to the counsellor when he told me that and I made an appointment to go myself because I thought that it was important to do that and then came back to work and it was I was lost for a long time we were all lost about what to do 
and I did then continue with back to normal my detective constable stuff and I'd done my detective training course and so I was working through all that stuff but it wasn't the same and then in August 2001 a detective sergeant that I'd worked very closely with on the case he had left and moved to Australia and he'd got a role as an HR director for an organi- a company in Sydney and he met for a coffee and he asked how I was and I went not great he said would you be interested in coming to Australia and working for me in HR I've got an opportunity and we work well together this is a internet company it's a startup they don't have any processes and procedures the police is full of processes and procedures you're always following um, instructions policies there's procedures for everything come with me and we will set up all this stuff and we'll just platform off the police how they do it and you can come and work for me so I was I landed in Australia on the 15th of October 2001 I took leave without pay from the police I rented out my house I put everything in storage with the intention that after a year away from it and a break and doing something different that I would go back but I didn't and I resigned I sold my house I brought everything across here and come October this year I would have been here 21 years so yeah so that is that story then in early this year I Always read the New Zealand newspapers, always keep abreast of what's going on. And I happened to see an article there about a William John Hanstra that had been arrested in Holland on charges of drug offences and creating a torture chamber for people in the Netherlands. And that he'd been arrested with a group of people on these really horrific crimes. And it had some footage of this torture chamber was like a big dentist chair and it was horrific and so I read that and went wow okay it's been arrested charged we'll see what happens got a couple of calls from people going did you see that yep saw it okay then in May this year he went to court and he went through a trial with the others and he was found guilty of those crimes those horrific crimes And when that was in the paper, my phone went off like a frog in a sock. I got contacted by all my ex-colleagues, friends, family, going, did you see that? Did you see that? And I was like, yes, I did. And I see what happens when I I can't say because he was found by his peers to be not guilty in in New Zealand, but 20 years, look what he potentially did in 20 years to get caught now. And I just, yeah, I, I struggled with reading that. And then, you know, somebody texts me and I, and I text back and went, Oh my gosh, I'm just, I don't know how to deal with it. And, he said to me, 20 years on, he still gets under your skin, doesn't he, that guy? And I went, yes, he does. And, you know, the group of the three of us that spent all that time in that room, 
we've got a little chat group and there was a lot of chat about how we were feeling about him finally being found guilty of something. So yes. So it's interesting because as a result of, you know, William Jan Hanstra being being found guilty in Holland, my colleague was asked for comment in regards to what he thought about that in the in the Terry Robert King homicide and the statement was made the New Zealand police are not looking for anybody in relation to this unsolved crime. It is not a cold case. And what does that actually mean? That the case is not open. We're no longer looking for anybody else in the relation to the murder of Terry Robert King. And what happens to a case like that? It sits there and, look, if somebody rang with some information to give the police to say, I know who killed Terry Robert King, they would need to investigate that. And so if anybody ever rang up and said, I know who did it, it was blah, 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 they would have to go through a process of investigating that because any calls like that do get investigated. But none has been received to my knowledge. And so therefore, no action has been taken on the case of the murder of Terry Robert King. So you didn't make the active decision to leave the police force. You decided you would take some time off, yes. put your toe in the water of a different career. But where was the moment when it sank in, no, I'm never going to be a police officer again? It was the fact that I joined the police because I wanted to do good for the community, like we all do, and that I could make a difference and that justice would be served. But that jury trial and how the jury was selected, what ended up being on that jury, what we relied on to get a very difficult decision made did not support the police, did not support the people that had given evidence, did not support the family of Terry Robert King. And I just didn't feel that that how the jury system is set up in New Zealand supports my ultimate end goal of why I joined the police and what I wanted to do. And I felt very let down by that jury, very let down. and didn't feel as I, I could do what I wanted to do, having to rely on that jury system. Yeah, and so at some point during the, the potential year off, did it dawn on you slowly or was there a a morning when you woke up and thought, no, I'm not going back? I, when I, because I got into HR and I felt as though I was then able to make a difference and I was able to influence that difference. And that was simple things like I was able to recruit somebody and offer them a job. I was able to give them some training. I was able to support them in their development. It was more, you know, that instant gratification of work I was able to do and work that I was able to make a difference, and I didn't have to rely on anybody else. I didn't have to rely on a jury. I didn't have to rely on how well somebody would give evidence. I didn't have to rely if they would actually turn up to give evidence. Because I'd done some other cases as well, which didn't go that well. So this is the worst of the cases I've done. And so I just, that thing of I didn't have to rely on anybody, and I could make a difference myself. 
And, you know, I was in Australia. I was living close to the beach. I was in a new environment. I didn't have a, didn't have a mortgage to worry about. I was free, basically, and I didn't know anybody. The other thing, too, was, you know, when you work in the police in a smaller town, so Wellington's not that big in the big scheme of things, there's every chance you might run into somebody that you know at the local dairy or at the supermarket or watching a game of sport that you may have interviewed, that you may have arrested, that you may have had a fight with. And I love the anonymity of being in Sydney and that I didn't know anybody. That was the best thing about it. And I really enjoyed that anonymity. And it sounds like you've kept a very strong bond with a small number of your fellow Mm -hmm. police officers. Are any of them still in the force or have they all left at one time or another? There's a there's a handful that are still there, yes, and I see them when I go home, and you know because there's there's nothing quite like those experiences, you know that that room that I was with those guys, you know uh, for that period of time. There's nothing like that. There's nothing like being in a patrol car doing night shift, driving around. You know you've Got only got you and your partner there. You're going to talk about all sorts of stuff. You're going to laugh about all sorts of stuff. And you're going to make jokes that are not appropriate that nobody else will ever get, but you're in the safety of that car that, you know, you don't quite have in other roles. And I do miss that. And so when I see those people, I can have that humour, which is not appropriate at times, but it's a different kind of humour. But um Yep, I'm still very close with a lot of people in the police. So, you know, uh, I'll always be thankful for that and really, really good friends that, you know, and good on those ones that are still there and they're doing doing that work. I really admire them and that they keep on striving and, and doing the, want to do the right thing for their community. But you feel it was absolutely the right decision to move to Australia and leave yes. the force? Yes, yes. And look, I've had a whole other life here. I've made some great friends through other things that I do, um, which I really appreciate, you know, which I wouldn't have had those opportunities. So I'm a great believer in life gives you opportunities and you need to take them. And, you know, I've had great opportunities in lots of things that I've done. And I never let an opportunity and a chance go by. And I think that's really important. There's a song that in New Zealand will never let a chance go by. Oh, no, don't ever let a chance go by. So I, I, I'm a great believer in that. And so to come to Australia was a chance and an opportunity, and then it's given me lots of others. So, yeah. Crime Scene is a true crime review podcast where we get to the heart of how true crime stories are told. Subscribe to our feed at robhasawebsite.com slash crime feed. You can follow me on Twitter at Sarah Carradine. Follow Mari at Mari Talks Too Much, that's two, like the number two, and follow Crime Scene at Crime Scene RHAP, that's Scene, S-E-E-N. Many thanks to Susan for sharing her experiences with us. Thanks to Will from America for the theme music, Tricky Rice for the graphics, and Scott St. Pierre behind the scenes. Until next time. <laughs>